Hi, welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. As always, you can reach out to us at food at markbittman.com. We're happy to hear from you. We'd love to hear any comments you have about the show and we'll happily respond. Please also consider subscribing to our near daily newsletter, The Bitman Project. That's at bitmanproject.com. And of course, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and leave us rave reviews. Back in a sec. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I met Calvin Trillin something like 10 years ago with a couple of mutual friends. We vaguely stayed in touch, uh, and then I had the idea of having him on the podcast because he's brilliant, he's brilliant, and because I was thinking about an article he wrote in which he talked about how Thanksgiving turkey should be replaced by spaghetti carbonara, which I sort of agree with, but mostly I think this came about because I was thinking about my career and how every November some editor or other would make you write about turkey, and I was like, never that into turkey. So, But anyway, I digress. Mr. Trillin, Calvin, Bud, to his friends and to almost everyone who who meets him, is a great writer. I have loved his writing for, I don't know, since I was in my 20s. I asked him to be on the podcast. He said yes. And a couple days before the interview, Kate said to me, God, you're so excited. You're so in love with him. You should just do this one yourself so you can shower him with your fandom. And guess what? After the interview, she was sad to have missed it. And you'll see why. This interview, just so you know, does not have a ton of food content. It has some, but it's more about Bud's very rich history with writing. He's been at The New Yorker for 60 years and has written about basically everything 
from civil rights to food to killings to his late wife to his strategy for picking restaurants. He's written about all of that and more extremely well. He's also a humorist and hilarious and a poet, as you'll see. I'm starstruck. This is a terrific interview. You will enjoy it. Guaranteed. Here we go. I think many people think of you as a New Yorker, but you were born in Kansas City. Um, You went to Yale. You eventually became a New Yorker writer. But before you began there, you were writing stuff um, for other people. Can you talk a little bit about those early years, the mid-60s? Yeah, I... uh... I worked for time in in the Southern Bureau from the fall of 60 to the fall of 61 and uh, wrote about almost nothing but um, the civil rights struggle. And then I was uh, uh, in the Time Bureau uh, in New York for about six months, which uh, those of us in the Bureau compared it to uh, a uh, transit authority policeman assigned to the tunnels. Uh, <laughs> that and, pleasant, huh? Yeah, it was that pleasant. And then for about a year, I was a writer at time. I was a floater um, uh, for most of that time, which is to say when the education writer who knew a lot about education and dealt with this every every week for years went on vacation, the floater came in. Uh, he had been in show business the week before, but he wrote with as much authority as the regular education writer or the regular sports writer or uh, medicine writer. And um, he had what we used to call instant omniscience. As he settled into the chair, he actually moved to the office of the guy who was gone. Suddenly he knew everything about say, <laughs> art, for instance medicine, uh, religion. I I had admitted at one point that I was the floater who tried to get out of the religion section by writing alleged in front of any religious historical <laughs> event. He found it all questionable, like the alleged parting of the Red Sea, or the, the uh, alleged crucifixion. You had your editors go for that. <laughs> they just crossed it out. I mean, they... they um, they had a lot of experience with smart Alex uh, at that time. One of the reasons the time could sound so authoritative was that uh, it didn't have any bylines. So you never knew that the person who was writing about the new Coventry Cathedral hadn't even known there was one a week before. Um, and uh, so I, uh, I was getting a little restless at time and I went to, um, by chance, a, a bunch of things happened that, uh, that uh, drew the attention of the New Yorker. And uh, it was mainly my first and last cover story at time. So I went to the New Yorker in the spring of 63. Um, and that's been sort of headquarters ever since then. I, I've written things for other people, but that would be shown on a computer with a little icon of a house. Right. You know, I was curious about the time you spent in the South. It was clear you were general assignment to some extent, but also you focused on race almost from the beginning. There's a piece about a conversation you witnessed between Martin Luther King and a young Southern conservative on an airplane that I thought was striking because it just made me feel, you know, if you think, oh, 
I think it was the summer of 64. So you think, okay, summer of 64, Freedom Rides, all of that. It's almost 60 years ago now. But you read that piece and you just think, wow, things have not changed all that much in that time in, in terms of race. And I'm wondering, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it or think about what things were like for you back in the 60s when you were in the South. But just reflecting on that, I'm wondering if you have anything to say. Well, um, as, as you may know, the civil rights story in the South went on plateaus. So sometimes nothing happened for a very long time because um, the federal government wasn't really seriously pushing for change. So there, there were times that I could have been in the South and not concentrated on, on race. They would have been sort of boring times, but that, that would have been possible. Mm. But the year I was down there, by chance, was the integration of, uh, uh, of Atlanta schools and, and of uh, the Nashville stores and, and uh, University of Georgia and the Freedom Rides and, and the sit-in movement. So there, there was a lot happening. And um, I guess I, I did a collection of pieces about race. Uh, a couple of years ago, and one of the things that that I noticed and that, that reviewers sometimes notice was, as you say, there there were pieces that could have been written when the book came out rather than ten or twenty years before that. So, I think on, on, in those occasions we've pro- we've sort of taken two steps forward and one step back a, a lot of times. And it's still, in a, in a way, one of the sort of principal story of the country, one of the principal stories of the country, um, even today. Um, I guess I found it interesting also because it involved regular people. Uh, it wasn't like talking to the public information guy at the State Department or something <laughs> like that, um, or, or a movie star. It, it was it, it ordinary people. and. There was a time in the South, after I covered the University of Georgia trial and and desegregation, when Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter uh, were admitted to the University of Georgia, uh, Hamilton lived off campus and basically changed his life as little as he could, uh, went back and forth to Atlanta every weekend. Charlene lived in the dorms, and she was alone. and some of the uh, southern bells in the dorms were, were not at all pleasant. So we talked on the phone occasionally. And, and one time, she had just come back from a, giving a speech in, in uh, Savannah and uh, said it was, uh, I said, there's supposed to be a great train from Atlanta to Savannah. And she said, not where we have to sit. and. I went to the South and I had read The Mind of the South and I had read all of these books and I knew all about Plessy versus Ferguson and, and the intra, as opposed to interstate transportation and all that. But all that just drained away. And, and what flashed into my mind was they can't make her sit back there. She's a friend of mine. I mean, I mm. it's personal. And then I realized that for Black people in the South, um, it was always personal, and uh, that I hadn't really quite understood it until that moment. 
although it seems so obvious. And um, I, I think the other thing about working there for a year was um, there's something uh, sort of confidence building about getting to know more about a subject uh, than your readers know. I think that eventually was true in the South. Of course, by the time it got through the time uh, editorial process, I remember after the Freedom Rides, I uh, was talking to one of the researchers, and uh, she said, uh, what did you think of, of our Freedom Ride cover story? And I said, I thought it was very interesting. Did you get my file? Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fact, I, mean, uh, I, I even knew it the closest, I guess, to possibility of getting hurt and everything. I thought, wow, <laughs> I could have stayed in bed. <laughs> but anyway, so it was, I, I think that was one of the things that made me somewhat uncomfortable doing either end of that. They used to say time was a great place to work unless you read the magazine. <laughs> I, and those days, I think that was true. Mm, it's unfortunate. When you went to the New Yorker, it seems to me that you became a person who found things interesting and wrote about things that you found interesting. And your beat was eventually called the U.S. Journal, and you wrote one every three weeks or so. They ran 3,000 words or so. And you've written about dozens of different subjects, obviously. But at some point, you started to write about murders or maybe to be more accurate or to be more respectful of what you thought about those pieces, the sort of circumstances surrounding one person killing another person. And I'm curious what drew you to that, what the first of those pieces was, what your editors at The New Yorker thought about that. I actually... Uh didn't do that purposely. I, I didn't. I didn't uh, realize, in fact, that I was doing it. I was looking for good stories, right? Story in the sense of the sort of thing you'd say around the fire, uh, the campfire, and uh, stories that had a beginning and a middle and an murder or uh, sudden death, uh, one sort or another, uh, is very good that way. Uh, very tempting because. Usually, a lot of stones are unturned or overturned in, in investigating murder or, or, or accidental death or something. So there's a lot of material. There's a great corpus to work on. My wife used to say I'd go anywhere where there was a transcript. Um, <laughs> and in a way, that was true. So almost until I got through, I did this the U.S. Journal for 15 years. And uh, I, I think it was almost a lot of the way through before I realized that I was sort of doing a lot of sudden deaths and murders and, uh, and eventually did a collection of them. I think the collection, the introduction starts out with something like uh, reporters love murders. So in a pinch, sudden death of any sort will do. <laughs> It was just a, a a way of finding what I thought was a good story. This is going to take a while to get to a question here, but I just wanted to say that the collection is called Killings, and I picked up a copy the other day, and I just absolutely devoured it. And then I remembered, which I I haven't, I didn't remember when when we first asked you if you'd come on the podcast. I thought, well, in the seventies, 
when the New Yorker came, I would look and see if there was a piece by you. And if there was, I was really excited. That was, I know, I just knew there was going to be something that I wanted to read. So I guess, yeah, I'm being a fan a little bit. But you have a very distinctive style, maybe more than most writers do. And I'm wondering whether it's intentional or it just feels natural. This is something we could have a conversation about someday because I have feelings about this too. But like, could you write another way if you wanted to? Did you become funny because you decided to become funny? Or is this just the way it, the way it feels right to you? It's the way it feels right for me. I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I would be able to write it in, in a different style. I think I would find, if not humor, at least some irony in, in most stories and even really serious stories. I was on a panel once and got a question like that, and he said, "What, what, what could be funny about the University of Georgia <laughs> desegregation?" I said, "Well, the frat boys who were expecting the Ku Klux Klan to come at, at, at the night of the of the riot uh, referred to the Ku Klux Klan as Tri Kappa, and I thought that was funny. And um, I, I, I think there's less difference between." the way I think and talk and the way I write than there is with some people. When people try to analyze it, uh, I don't recognize what what they're saying usually. Um, I, I just write it whatever it sounds best. Stay tuned for more with me and Bud Trillin. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. When I asked you first, first asked you to be on the podcast, you, of course, completely in character said you knew nothing about food, or at least you weren't the food writer. Um, <laughs> Craig Claiborne did call you the Walt Whitman of American Eats, but Craig Claiborne's another story. But <laughs> um, you have written countless pieces about food and eating. Your quip about La Casa de Maison House, of course, was at least one of my favorites. But your shining moment was declaring that carbon spaghetti carbonara should be the national dish on Thanksgiving, and you let it be known that you thought turkey was something that people were punished with by being forced to eat for staying in the dormitories on Sunday. But let's just talk about food a little bit and your background there. I read somewhere that your father had a restaurant, and before that, he was a grocer. I wonder if any of that matters. You have a, you have a, you come to food honestly. It may have uh, had something to do with it, not rising to the point where I realized it. My father was a grocer. He hated the grocery business, but um, he was, he had sworn he was a swearer offer. My father, he swore <laughs> off things. He was going to get out of it in a certain year, and that was during the Second World War. So he, couldn't leave them, but then he just sold his grocery stores. And um, for a while, he had a restaurant. It was, I guess, what you'd call sort of a family restaurant. It didn't, it didn't. I'm, I'm sure it didn't have liquor. And uh, it was sort of in in the residential district rather than downtown. So a lot of regulars came in for lunch. My father, he had a, a rhyming couplet on the menu every day for lunch. Uh, usually about pie. His shortest was uh, don't sigh, eat pie. But he had <laughs> poems like, all right, warden, I'm ready to fry. I've had my last piece of Mrs. Jones. <laughs> and my favorite one of his poems, he was, he was big on meter, I mean, on rhyme, but not much on meter, um, was um, eat your supper, mom said gently to her little son, Roddy. If you don't, I'll break every bone in your body. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so that was definitely an influence because uh, I always had been the person uh, who wrote what what I think of as uh, special occasion poetry right. for somebody's wedding or or big birthday. But but there wasn't any kind of uh, serious knowledge or or interest in. And food in my family. Sometimes my father would would say um, about some green beans that he liked. What brand are these? He he say to my mother since they came out of a can of right. some sort. Right. And but unfortunately, he brought home cans that had lost their labels. So my mother hadn't even known they were green beans, let right. alone <laughs> what brand they were. Uh, and I've said many times that that I was in college before I realized that for 20 years, my mother had served nothing but leftovers. Um, and we had anthropologists in there looking for the original meal, but it had never been found. Because 
she would jump up from the table and say, oh, I forgot the jello mold. And there was 15 other items on the table. So I think starting about writing about eating, and uh, I genuinely don't know anything about it in the sense that I, I don't know what things are supposed to taste. I don't, I don't cook. I think it, I realized at some point that it was a way during the time I was doing the U.S. Journal series that it was a, a way to write about the country in a, in a light way rather than, say, in a, in a murder or, or in a dispute. And so it, in a way, it was comic relief, not so much for the reader, but for me. It was a story which I didn't have to fill many notebooks full of notes to do and worry about getting past some secretary to talk to the deputy police commissioner and so it was it was sort of a uh, it was fun i was always amazed when people would sometimes they would call sometimes i would be on the road and they would call my house total strangers and ask where to eat in chicago so they, my wife was not amused by these calls which usually came during dinner time <laughs> just showed how easy it was to be considered an authority in this country because I keep saying, I, I don't really know anything about this, but it didn't make any difference. So I, I didn't really come with a lot of knowledge or background in, in the food, even though I, my father had a restaurant. And I think the way that it, it influenced me more was that I, I could say I was a second generation poet. I was I was going to say, it sounds more like the the poetry was an influence than the Absolutely. Than the food stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was the world's worst busboy in that restaurant for a while. Um, you were probably the first writer, or certainly most famously the the writer to make Kansas City barbecue a nationally famous thing. How'd that come about? Well, that that is is one thing that was influenced by my upbringing. Restaurants in Kansas City were segregated. Black people did not eat in white restaurants, including my father's white restaurant. I mean, nobody nobody asked, but 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 I I don't know what would have happened, except Brian's Barbecue was a black restaurant, black run restaurant, uh, with uh, white clientele as well as black clientele because we couldn't stay away. Right, and and as you as you, I'm sure you know. Barbecue has a different style according to where it is in the in the in the country, and um, I I have always said that in Kansas City, as opposed to say Texas or someplace like that, going to a white-run barbecue joint is like going to a Gentile internist. Uh, things might turn out, but you're not playing the percentages. I have a feeling you've used that line before. <laughs> Yeah, I have many times. Uh, so I started going there in high school, I think, to, to Brian's. And um, Kansas City Barbecue was all over Kansas City. They just didn't make much of it. I mean, they didn't talk about it as much as some of the southern barbecue places did. And like a lot of places with barbecue, a lot of cities, uh, it, it, it came from people coming up from Mississippi or someplace like that. Or in, in in Arthur Bryan's case, uh, Texas, uh, bringing that style of barbecue to Kansas City, and um, 
I but I I I like all kinds of barbecue. I mean, I, I uh, I've written about North Carolina barbecue and and uh, uh, any number of places. This is probably a yes no question, but do you read anybody else's writing about food? No. Yeah, <laughs> so, that was worth asking. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, a lot of writing about food is about cooking, and since I don't cook, it, it doesn't do me much good to to, uh, to read about it. But uh, but people say, "Oh, I guess you're steeped in MFK Fisher or something," but not really. I mean, nothing, mm. I don't have anything against that, but I but it just not the sort of thing that interests me. Last question, and then I'll let you go. You have said twice that you don't cook, so I guess we believe you. We ask everyone what they had for dinner last night, so it must have been takeout on your part. It was takeout, although saying I don't cook, it's, there, there should be a, uh, an asterisk next to that. I've actually written a, years ago a piece in The New Yorker about the dishes I cook in Nova Scotia, where I live in the summer. They're between five and eight dishes, uh, depending on various things. Like, for instance, does there have to be stove involvement mm-hmm. uh, to count? Um, so uh, last night I had uh, what was called spicy chicken noodle soup from a place on 6th Avenue, not far from where I live, called, I believe, Goody Fresh. Which I love. I love the name. It's a proper Chinese restaurant name, and it was in fact takeout. How was it? Delicious, of course. I'm, I have to ask you what the five to eight things, or at least a couple of representative of the five to eight things, are. Can string beans, of course. <laughs> no, there. One of the things would be a smoked mackerel pate. Here's the recipe for that. Smoked mackerel and a Cuisinart. <laughs> Maybe a little little lemon or 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 mayonnaise on, say, Canada Day or 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 a big birthday. Uh, and another one like that is applesauce from from one particular apple tree on the property. Well, that's and, a, that's a good one. And here's the here's the recipe for that: apples. Right. And uh, then there's a scallop dish that, that's an actual scallop dish because the scallops are so good there that that even a not even amateur cook, but but a once in a lifetime cook can not screw them up. Um, you can screw them up by overcooking them, no matter how good they are. But yeah, 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 that's true. I can't think of the others, but but uh, maybe eight was a little big of braggadocia <laughs> for me. I'm not sure I could make it up to eight. All right. Well, totally a privilege. Thanks for your time and good talking with you. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Okay. So in honor of Bud Trillin, I'm going to give you my recipe for applesauce. It's it's a stretch to call this a recipe. But some people haven't made homemade applesauce. And until you make it, you might think it involves more than just putting a bunch of apples in a pot. But that's really about it. Anyway, I'm going to read it to you. Apples are in season. I saw them ripe. I ate one ripe from a tree today, and they're certainly coming to be in season. So here you go. Take about five pounds of apples, 
you can do this with any quantity you want, but five pounds fits nicely in a big pot. So take a, about five pounds of apples, a mixture of varieties if you have them, local, of course, if you have them. I, in the self-plugging department, I will say there's a lot of information about apples and applesauce in How to Cook Everything Vegetarian and in How to Cook Everything. Anyway, take five pounds of apples, cut them in half, or if they're big, cut them in quarters. If you have a food mill, just dump them in a pot. If you don't have a food mill, core them and peel them. It's actually easier to peel them when they're whole. Then in this pot, put about a half an inch of water and a tiny pinch of salt, a large pot, obviously large enough to accommodate your five pounds of apples. Cover, turn the heat to medium. When it begins to boil, uncover and then cook slowly, stirring occasionally. You obviously don't want it to burn on the bottom until the apples become mush. That could take 30 minutes. It could take an hour. Then let's sit until cool enough to handle. And now for those of you with a food mill who did not core and peel your apples, put them through the food mill, discarding the stuff that's left behind them. For those of you who did peel and core the apples, you just mash them with a potato masher or a fork. It'll be very easy. And then put in containers and freeze or refrigerate. That is it, my friends. Thank you so much to Bud Trillin for joining me. You can read his work, of course, in The New Yorker and in The Nation and in about a zillion books that he's written. He doesn't do social media. So follow me at Bitman or at Mark Bitman on Instagram. Again, please subscribe to the podcast and check out our newsletter at BitmanProject.com. Thank you very much to my producer and usual co-host, Kate Bittman, who chickened out on this, much to her chagrin, and to our engineer, Davis Lloyd. And thank you for listening and tune in next week when we will have somebody amazing. See you then. Bye.